So last week, um, Jacob started us off in the book of Colossians. And um, he did this by uh, leading us in a time of prayer based off of the truths that we learned from that passage. And um, I love hearing the story or the, how that has blessed you guys, um, hearing how you guys, the testimonies of how you um, were blessed as you engaged with God in prayer over the, the truths that we learned in Scripture. Um, and this morning, we're going to continue our study through the, the book of Colossians, starting in verse 15. But before we begin, I'd like to start us off with a word of prayer. Jesus, we are just so in love with you and what you have done for us, what you are revealing to us, the ways that you meet us each individually um, and personally. Lord, I pray that as we get into your word this morning, that we would experience the fullness of who you are from your scripture, that we would taste and see that you are good that we would see the beauty and the majesty of your nature, of your character, and that our lives would be transformed in that process. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so the book of Colossians was written by a man named Paul who wrote many of the books in the New Testament. Um, he wrote them as letters to church to the churches um, at the time and he wrote these letters in order to uh, exhort teach and challenge them and Colossians is also part of a group of letters or epistles known as the prison epistles because Paul wrote them while he was in prison in Rome and as we study uh, this letter um, to the Colossians, we are going to see Paul make references to uh, the fact that he is in prison. And the reason Paul wrote this letter was he had received a visit from his friend Epaphras, who had started the church in Colossae, and he had told them, he told Paul about the things that God was doing there. And so Paul wanted to write them a letter to encourage them and to also um, correct a false teaching that was beginning to arise in the Colossian church. Uh, the false teaching formed as new converts were coming to Christianity from both Greek and Jewish backgrounds. And because of this, this, this false teaching known as a heresy was relying heavily on our, their works as well as an intellectual and knowledge, uh, pursuit of intellectual and knowledge. Um, and this uh, early church heresy is known as Gnosticism. And that we see this come up a lot in church history. And this was an early form of what is known as Gnosticism. And again, they believed that they had received this special knowledge and that they were superior to others as a result. And while they did not outright deny that Jesus existed or his importance, they did claim that he was less than God. And because of this, that was influencing the church at the time, Paul wrote this letter to uh, the people in Colossae to both encourage them in the truth and to also correct this lie. And some of your Bibles might have a header over our section this morning in Colossians 
115 that says uh, the preeminence of Christ. And the best way to define what this word preeminence means is first place. The word preeminence refers to the fact that Jesus holds the first place over everything else. And that's why we actually made our, the title of our sermon series through the book of Colossians, we've called it Christ Over All. Because it is a huge theme of this book in Colossians. And we first find it mentioned, and, and Paul starts talking about it here in our passage of Colossians 1, 15 through 23. And from this section of this letter, Paul is going to show us that Christ is overall as our creator, sustainer, and reconciler. Christ is overall as our creator, sustainer, and reconciler. So let's begin now, starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And from this, we get our first truth for this morning, which is this. Christ is over all as our creator. Christ is over all as our creator. So Paul begins by showing us that Christ is over all in the beginning as creator of everything. This also echoes John's testimony that we read a few months ago when we first started John in John 1, 1 through 3. When John said this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. What both John and Paul are communicating is that Jesus is before and over everything else. He is not a created being, but he is actually the one who created, and he was there at the beginning with God the Father. And as the image of God, Jesus is the highest revelation that we can receive. In Jesus, we have received the greatest resemblance and representation of God because he is God. The false special revelation that the the Gnostics were teaching in the Colossian church emphasized what one could learn through much rigorous study and meditation. And because its end goal was this intellectual high revelation knowledge pursuit, it fell short in comparison to what we have offered to us in Jesus. And while knowledge and understanding are good things for us to pursue, they are not the goal in and of themselves. The revelation that Jesus brings us goes far beyond just an intellectual pursuit as we encounter the risen Jesus himself. We can actually experience the person of Jesus and not just the, the knowledge of him. We can actually use the knowledge of God that we receive in relationship with Jesus as a launching pad into greater intimacy with God. And as an example, uh, I like to fish. And um, something that I do is I research and I look up uh, the fishing reports to see what other fishermen have been catching in the area and see what lakes are good spots. And um, I love doing that. I love reading about all the different uh, updates in the area, but if all I did was just read all the updates and go, oh, that sounds fun, and then didn't actually engage in the fishing, I would be missing out on the greatest part, which is actually, for me, being out on the water, casting out a line, and catching a fish. And so, in the same way, when we we have the ability 
to learn about God and to grow in our understanding of God. But if it ends there and we don't actually engage with God in, in prayer and in reading his word, then we're missing out on all that is available to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Like I said, we can do this in prayer as we experience relationship with Jesus by speaking to and with him. We can experience him as we read his word and his spirit enlightens our minds to the greatness and the power of who God is. We can experience his love for us and his grace in our lives as he continues to pour out his spirit into our hearts and draws us closer and closer to himself. And I love I loved to learn, I love to grow in my understanding and read books, but nothing compares to the experience that we can have as we encounter Jesus over and over again through prayer and reading his word. And not only did these early Gnostics put an emphasis on knowledge and intellect, they also put, in this group here in Colossae also put an, an, a lot of emphasis on their good works. And Paul was also addressing the emptiness of this as he shows that Christ far outweighs that category as well as he is the one who has done the the great work of creating life itself. And so it would be foolish to elevate our works in comparison to the great work that Christ has done in creating life. But was this all that Christ has done? Is this what, was this the peak of his work? Well, let's continue reading to see what we find. Colossians 1.17 says this, and he is before all things and in all things, and in him all things hold together. From this we get our second truth. Christ is over all as our sustainer. Christ is over all as our sustainer. Paul continues to show the greatness of Jesus by showing that Jesus is not just the creator of life, but he is the sustainer of life. He holds everything together. Everything that exists, exists because he is causing it to exist. And during uh, the Enlightenment era, there was a French uh, philosopher by the name of Voltaire who said that God is like a, a master clock maker who created the universe, set it in motion, but then left and allowed the, the natural laws of, of nature and physics to continue things going. But we see that that belief and what he was teaching was actually incorrect, as we see in Scripture, that it, it goes against what we read here. See, Jesus is, did not just create and then step away, but we see that he is directly and intimately involved in everything that exists. He is holding all things together. And recently, um, our apartment complex was having some uh, plumbing issues, and so our landlord called in a plumber to fix it, and in order to fix it, he had to turn off the water. And um, it was off for about an hour, and but I kept going and trying to turn on a faucet here or there or do something with water, and I would remember, oh, the water's off, and I can't do that right now. And I realized, I was reminded of how, how um, dependent I am upon water day, in my day-to-day life. And in the same way, much more, life itself, existence itself, is, is dependent upon Jesus. And while I know this to be true, there are times in my life when um, I know that to be true about life and the existence and all of that, but then I don't realize how um, my actions show that I don't seem to believe that about my day-to-day life, that he's involved with it. And what I mean by that is I find myself agreeing that Jesus is the sustainer of life and also 
that he is the one who brought me my salvation. So he, he created life. He created my, the spiritual life in me. Yet if I'm honest, I can go about my day living as though it's up to me to sustain that in me. I can believe that I am saved by Jesus from my sins and penalty of them, but then live in the, in the belief that I, I, it's actually up to me to be the sustainer of it. And like the ancient uh, Gnosticism that Paul was addressing, I can believe that it's up to my knowledge, my ability, my perseverance, to, and it is dependent upon me to sustain my salvation. And there's an element to our faith that is deeply knowledgeable. The first and greatest commandment, Jesus says, is to love the Lord your God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. He's given us incredible minds to learn about his creation and himself. And there's also an element to our faith that is deeply uh, rooted in the, our actions and the works that our belief creates. And the book of James shows us that if we say we believe one thing, but then our actions show something else to the contrary, it proves that we actually believe something different. But while these things are true about our faith, they are not what sustains us as believers. They're not what keeps us as his. When I believe that it's up to me to, and I start thinking that it's, it's my works that sustain me as a Christian, when I when I think that I have to prove my self-reliance as a believer and my ability to live up to my belief, I think that it's all about, that Christian maturity is about that, that it's all up to me, that it's, it's me proving my self-reliance. And what the Lord has been showing me is that our Christian maturity should actually produce more neediness for God and not less. Just like we did nothing to earn our, our salvation, the gospel continues to show us time and time again that it is his work, his grace in our life, his spirit in us that sustains us in that salvation. Matthew 5 records a sermon that Jesus gave to his disciples on a mountain. And in this sermon, Jesus was speaking of blessings that would come for followers of Jesus. And the first blessing that he spoke in that sermon was this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus was communicating then and to us now is that blessing and closeness to God does not come from showing how self-reliant and dependent we are in ourselves. Instead, it is in realizing and confessing how weak we are apart from him. As we realize, confess, and live in this way, we experience greater and greater intimacy and closeness with God. By doing this, we are turning from the temptation of trying to prove ourselves in our own works and instead living in the truth that we are his beloved children and because of his work on our behalf. Yet, this, this comes in, in contrast to our, our natural tendencies, doesn't it? We naturally want to think that it's, it's up to us to prove our independence and ability to do it in our own strength, then, and then we are able to prove that we are, are, are his children. But the gospel shatters this belief time and time again as we're reminded that it is his grace, his sustaining power in us that keeps us walking with him. Paul says it beautifully in the book of Galatians this way. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
So often I read this verse and I think, okay, so if, if, if crucifying myself means that Christ can live in me, then I need to do these things, X, Y, and Z, to crucify myself. And, I, and I, I ironically, in a verse that talks about not being about me and dying to myself and my own self-reliance, I become self-reliant again. And I miss out on the second half of the verse, which says, and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, the life that we live as we are dependent upon Jesus to sustain us and keep us is one of faith in God and his love for us in Jesus. The more I have been able to just live in light of his love for me, defined as being his beloved, I have been able to live much more freely as I enjoy God and his enjoyment of me. As, as an example of this, the other day I was, um, I was out fishing and it was raining and it was cold and I saw this uh, mother goose with her babies that had huddled up next to her, tucked closely to her side and under her wings to be, get protection from the rain. And as I saw this, the Lord brought to my mind the imagery that is found out th- all throughout scripture that God uses of himself to show his love and compassion towards us. He uses the imagery of a mother bird gathering her young under the, the shelter of her wings. And there's a, as an example of that, um, Psalm 17.8 says this, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. See, this speaks to both the fact that God sustains us and keeps us safe, as well as his affection and love for us. Just like the little baby geese were held safely under their mother's wings from the rain and kept warm, tucked into her side. But there was another time when Jesus has also used this imagery as well. See, the Jewish people had continued to uh, reject Jesus as their Messiah, even though he had revealed himself to them as such. And he says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing You see, Jesus, again, he had presented himself as Messiah, yet they rejected him because they were so stuck in their traditions and their laws. And in the same way, when I believe that it's all up to me and what I I do and my self-reliance and I'm depending on myself and my identity as a child of God is wrapped up in my works and the things that I do, Jesus calls out to me like this, desiring to tuck me under the wings of his love and grace calling me closer to himself to desperately, to be desperately needy for him and his love in my life. When I do this, I then live not as someone trying to prove that I am his. Rather, I live that I am his beloved child because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross for me. And look at how Paul goes on to show uh, this in verse 18 and how this truth both applies to us individually but also corporately as the body of Christ. Verse 18, he says this, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. We all know how important our heads are to sustain our bodies, right? If uh, the head is removed from the body, it ceases to be alive. In the same way as our head 
is important for our bodies to live and to thrive. Jesus is the one who sustains us as the church of, and the body of believers. As a church, um, we're not unified and, and thriving, living because we agree on all the same things. We're not unified and thriving because we have, you know, the best strategies and models. And we're not unified and thriving because we have um, a great church leadership or a building for us to uh, meet in. Those are all and can all be good things. But they are not the head of the church. The head of the church and what keeps us unified and thriving is Jesus. And that is why we desire to become more and more dependent upon God in prayer. That's why we have been, we've been pursuing this praying together as a body of believers because prayer reminds us of our need for Jesus and keeps us connected to him as our head. And as we come together unified as a body of believers, we are also staying connected to Jesus as our head. And that's why we value gathering together as a church on Sunday mornings and throughout the weeks in each other's homes during city groups so that we can, we can be the body unified under the head of Jesus. See, Jesus is our sustainer, not just for our individual lives, but he also sustains us as the church, as we love him and one another as his body here on earth. So far, Paul has been showing us that how Christ is overall as he is our creator and sustainer. And now we're going to see how he is our reconciler. Let's pick up now verse 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased as well, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. See, from this we get our, our final truth for this morning, which is this. Christ is over all as our reconciler. Christ is over all as our reconciler. The Bible shows us that God created everything and that it was good, but then something marred this creation. Man sinned, which brought in death to the world. Sorry. (laughs) Man sinned, and it brought in death. And as a result, everyone born into sin needs to be saved from the penalty of it, which is death. But God who is rich in mercy, and because of his great love for us, sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the penalty of our sins. And as a result, everyone who puts their faith in Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, is saved, is is brought out of that penalty of sin, and is then reconciled back to God. And that's how Jesus is our reconciler. And this is the wonderful hope of the gospel that we believe and trust in. And Paul is reminding the Colossian church of this as well to bring them back to what brought them together in the first place. But just like Jesus being our sustainer is not just for us individually, Jesus as our reconciler is also for a purpose corporately as the body of Christ. So notice the contrast that Paul has between in verses 21 and 22. First, he says you were alienated, which means separated, and we were alienated from God because of evil deeds of sin. But then he says that we have been reconciled, brought back into relationship with God, and not because of our good deeds, but because of Christ's good deed on, for, on, for dying on our behalf. And then 
he presents us holy and blameless before God. But he doesn't just reconcile us so that we can remain isolated and alienated. Rather, he reconciles us to himself. And as he does this, he unifies us with the body of Christ who is under him as, as the head. It's this beautiful hope of the gospel that saves us personally is also what unifies us and brings us together as his one and unified church. Reconciliation isn't a work we do in and of ourselves, by ourselves. It is a work that Christ has already done in reconciling us first to God and then to each other. And that's why Paul goes on to say this in verse 23, which is also where we're going to close for this morning. If indeed you come in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul is saying that the thing that unifies them as a body, keeping them sustained in Jesus, is their faith in Jesus. It is not because of some special revelation or because of something that they can do, but it is actually because of what Christ has done for them on their behalf. Paul shows them that he says, this message of the gospel that I proclaim as well and believe. See, Paul wasn't even part of their church. He hadn't even met them. He heard about them through Epaphras. But they were unified because of their belief in the gospel. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to visit some friends in California. And as we talked with them, it was we were reminded of the fact that they have the same spirit in them as is in us. As we, as we enjoyed the fellowship, as we talked about what God has been doing in our lives and has been showing us, we were unified as the body, even though we don't even go to the same church and we're living in totally different states. In the same way here at City Light Mosaic, we, we are all from different backgrounds, from different countries. Some of us speak different languages, yet we're unified because of his spirit living in us. And, I, and I, my prayer is that as we see this, that he... Christ is our reconciler, that we would be reminded of the need and the importance of being rooted in this fact that we are only unified and connected because of Jesus, because of his work for us, because of what he has done on our behalf and because of what he is doing through us. And that's how we're connected and unified as a church. But if you're in here this morning and you've never, maybe you've never fully put your trust in Jesus, maybe you're still on the fence or you just haven't really made that decision for yourself, my prayer and what I would ask is that you would listen to the call of the Holy Spirit this morning as he is calling you to himself, that you would repent of your sins and stop living a life that is contrary to God, but that you would actually follow after and run after God that your life would be defined as his because you put your faith in what Jesus did on your behalf. But for those of us who do believe, who have believed this message and have put our faith in Jesus, let, again, this be a reminder of the message that we have received, the gospel that unifies us, that reconciles us, and that is Jesus who sustains us, our creator and our friend. Let's pray. Jesus, in your word, we see just an incredible um, reminders time and time again of the fact that we need you and that you are there. You are our help. You are the ever-present help in time of trouble. And that we can come to you in our time of need and that we can receive your sustaining power and grace in our lives. Lord, I pray that 
as we have read this, this truth in Colossians this morning, that we would be impressed upon our hearts, our need for you more and more, and that we would draw closer and closer to you, just as those little uh, geese did to their mother to be protected from the rain and to keep warm by her side, that we would draw close to you in prayer and in reading your word, seeking your help, and that you would draw us together in that as a church, unified in prayer and in a love for you and your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.